Hi, this is the Leading Language and Literature podcast with me, Chris Jordan. In this episode, I am speaking with Amy Staniforth. Amy is an acting head of department, assistant principal and co-author of the amazing Ready to Teach Macbeth. We discuss the best text Amy's ever read, taught or been taught, what kind of time scale and process goes into planning the books in her Ready to Teach series, what made Amy and Stuart choose Macbeth and The Christmas Carol, and whether the guides are written with any particular key stage in mind, how Amy approaches a significant extract of a play or novel with her students, one area of practice she'd like to improve on, what texts Amy's department cover at Key Stage 3 and why, and lastly, when we can expect Ready to Teach A Christmas Carol to be ready. With Twitter always ready to offer an incredibly diverse and insightful amount of reading material, I hope I managed to convey to Amy the outstanding effect that Ready to Teach Macbeth has had on my teaching and its place as an outstanding resource for English teachers around the world. I imagine that my anticipation for Ready to Teach A Christmas Carol is also shared by all those who are lucky enough to be familiar with Amy and Stuart's work and are looking forward to reading it later this year. If you want to be kept up to date on when educational chat like this happens, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast and or follow me on Twitter at ChrisJordanHK. Okay, Amy, um, what is the best text you've ever read, taught or been taught yourself? That's a really good question because... I think I remember really distinctly being at school um, in year 12 doing uh, A-level English literature and um, it was The Great Gatsby and it was one of those moments where I really realised it was a proper like a light bulb moment for me because there's a moment in Gatsby and I remember where I was sitting in the classroom and I remember um, how it felt to realise for the very first time that I wanted to kind of study English forever, I wanted to go off and do it at university, I wanted to be a teacher. I hadn't, I always loved English and I loved reading, but there was this, this kind of threshold moment, really specifically as well, it wasn't even the whole novel. Um, there's a moment in chapter two when Fitzgerald describes um, the first time that um, that Nick goes to the Buchanan mansion and he describes the... Um, the, the sun, how it jumps over sundials and, and burning gardens up towards the front door of the mansion. I remember just my brain just feeling like, oh, that's it's such a beautiful description. And I think from then I was completely hooked. And I think it helped as well. That I had a brilliant teacher um, called Miss Cracknell, who um, actually I, I thanked in the acknowledgements for Ready to Teach Macbeth because not necessarily the first time, there's a couple of teachers I had a bit like her, um, but I had her all the way through upper school from, from year nine. And what she was beautiful as a teacher was really kind of acknowledging that we had valid voices. So we weren't just kind of absorbing um, kind of critical texts about literature. We had a valid voice as part of that conversation. And I think that was hugely important for me as a young person to think that my opinions were valid in this discussion about literature. And we belonged in that discussion. And I could kind of take apart what Fitzgerald was doing and, and feel just as valid in doing it as, as people who did it for a, an actual living. Um, I've also really enjoyed teaching that text at A-level as well. Um, but I think the text that I don't teach A level at the moment, the text that I I love teaching more than anything else is is probably Macbeth. Um, and I think it's because of the story. I think 
there's always moments when you teach Macbeth and I've, I've been teaching for nine years and there's always moments when I teach it where there's like this gasp from the class when they realize what's happening because I think even though it's written 450 years ago and it's set in the 11th century, you know, we still see characters in Macbeth who reflect real men and women of today. And I'm not getting political about it, but that kind of idea of ambition and how ambition can be quite a corrupting influence, I think is something a lot of people can um, kind of understand and acknowledge in others. Um, and the other thing I love about Macbeth, and then I'll get off my Macbeth soapbox briefly, is that um, I, I don't think anything about his characters are two-dimensional. I think his characters, regardless of their role in any of his texts, are really rich. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about Ross recently in Macbeth because, um, actually, Stuart uh, Pryke and I went to see a version of it in London at the Armida with um, Saoirse Ronan and James McArdle. And um, the, the way that they'd interpreted Ross in that play gave us an entirely new understanding of his character, something we'd never considered before. And we kind of, you know, really opened our eyes to the possibility of that character. Again, you know, like a fresh reading of him 450 years down the line. It's always exciting to navigate that with a class, I think. Lovely answers. Um, the great, funny, it's so funny that you say that, but the great Gatsby, the, the, the teacher who taught in the classroom before me, uh, left like one or two copies of the great Gatsby behind. And I see it every day and I always think, I'd love to get that back into the curriculum. I've never, I don't think I've ever taught it actually, but I'd love to get it in there somewhere. It's just this, yeah, it's a brilliant, brilliant text. Um, coming back to Ready to Teach Macbeth or uh, the Ready to Teach series, um, when you were working on Macbeth and 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 the kind of the four um, forthcoming um, text about uh, Christmas Carol, what kind of time scale and process goes into planning uh, things like that we we get a kind of a, a bit of a a peep into it through twitter um but can you give us kind of a, a a description or an idea of what that's like for you and Stuart to do oh that's a great question because i think one thing we we've talked about quite a lot is the idea that actually no one ever teaches you how to write a book it's it's a process that you explore um kind of yourself and so when we wrote Ready to Teach Macbeth a, a huge amount of that was around kind of finding our way of working what that book looked like and felt like and how it sounded what the voice of it was and and what components were going to go into it um I mean we'd had the initial idea we'd talked about writing a book together for a really long time um and I remember we were sitting we we're sitting on a tube train actually in London talking about um what the book could look like and getting very excited about kind of the, the possibility and we'd settled on this idea of um we wanted to for it to be a bit of a one-stop shop the idea of what it is that teachers might want to know in terms of their own subject knowledge how they might deliver it um in the classroom with impact and then why they might deliver it in that way so what's kind of an introduction to some of the underpinning pedagogy of the book and once we had that kind of framework in place um what we we did and we've, we've done exactly the same thing for this uh, this new book is we've got this um, great big planning document where we start off thinking about that kind of sweeping overview so how many how are we going to carve up this text what what makes sense so with Macbeth are there other scenes that we can group together in A Christmas Carol you know where in each stage are we going to pause and write a chapter about that particular element so we have this document that has that kind of overview on it with the number of chapters, how the text is going to be split up. Um, we've also identified in there already kind of um, what pedagogy we might want to highlight in the why section. 
we think about what additional contextual essays we want to include and where that's going to best fit in terms of the narrative of the book overall. Um, and then we get a really interesting conversation, which is where we kind of carve up the book a little bit um, and think about where we have particular expertise or particular interest, which chapters each of us might like to take a lead on writing. So we we have the approach um, and it works really well in the for us in that um you know there's certain aspects of a Christmas carol or Macbeth I particularly have loved writing about and the same is true for Stuart and um so we write those chapters and then we're in the process now with a Christmas carol probably the most exciting part actually so the, the writing is done um we're in the process of editing now and we do editing again you know we don't know if this is if there's a right way to do it but the way that works for us is we spend many many hours on the phone to each other reading the book aloud and Stuart will read the chapters that I've written and I'll read the chapters that Stuart's written out loud because I think hearing it in somebody else's voice helps you really pick out bits that don't scan things that might need clarification bits that can be edited down um, and cut so we're just on the the second read through um, of A Christmas Carol at the moment and that will go off to the uh, the publishers um, in a couple of weeks, actually, is, is our deadline we've, we've set for ourselves. Um, so the whole process, I think, from beginning to end takes about a year, maybe just over a year in the case of this book, because there's a lot of, um, as well as the, the writing, of course, there's lots of reading as well and immersing ourselves in, in the criticism around A Christmas Carol or Macbeth, um, you know, as we approach that writing so that we really understand lots of different perspectives on the text and can embed those into what we're writing then. Um, so it's a long process, but uh, I think a really fun one. That's really insightful, actually, that you said there about like reading it over the phone to one another. I had kind of visions of you had some kind of, you know, um, um, publisher kind of at your shoulder, like sort of um, pushing you to to check things and edit stuff and stuff like that. But that's such a I've never heard of that approach before, kind of reading it out to one another. That seems like such a good yeah, way to approach it. Um, I remember you saying in another interview that I listened to a few weeks ago, months ago, that you had to cut out how many pay, how many words was it of the original Macbeth? It was something like forty thousand words, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's right. <laughs> Is um, it and unbelievable. We're on for more than that, I think, in A Christmas Carol as well. The, the first draft manuscript has ended up quite a chunk longer than the original Macbeth one, so oh we're cutting God. it down. But what we both find is that when we um, when we cut things, we very quickly forget what it was in the first place that yeah. was there. Um, so I think what it helps us do is to, to kind of bring um, the focus in on exactly the kind of pre- precise things we really want to share with our readers. Um, and really that kind of reading over the phone approach, just to kind of skip back there a second, mm. is is interesting because it works really well for us and then we have a third reader because we have our editor um, Mm. as our publisher who then goes through and she is wonderful she's worth her absolute weight in gold um because she really helps us kind of shape up that final draft um so we're lucky to have to have her and to have um you know john cat as our publishers they um incredibly supportive of, of what we're doing with with both of those books it, yeah, it, what comes over from reading, obviously, I've only had the pleasure of reading the first, um, the the Macbeth book. But what what it comes over is like it's it's just, it's um, you can tell that it's it's a 
a labor of love not just that actually but also so much time and so much attention like every t has been crossed every i has been dotted so to speak it's just there's no kind of thing left unturned i think that's maybe where you obviously are probably aware of like all the, the compliments that the book gets and things like that and even if my in my own experience every single person i've shared that book with absolutely loves it and i think that's why that there's a big difference between what what you've made and buying you know the gcse or a level companion off off amazon for for the play which they're, they're always useful but this i just i remember when it getting getting it through the post and just the heft of the thing was pretty <laughs> was pretty incredible it's not what i was expecting and then just every single page i've lent it to someone at the moment actually and they screen cap me a couple of pages and send it to me nearly every day this week saying like this bit's amazing um yeah and just the, the last compliment i'll make because this is turning into like kind of a bit of a fanboy thing but um is i've met people who've said oh that's amazing i wonder if they've got one for insert shakespeare play here so like othello or um um what's it called um uh 12th night and stuff like that which uh, a few of my colleagues teach or have taught and it's but knowing what's gone into it, obviously it's not that easy to just churn them out. Like maybe some of the, the the big companies can do, the big publishers can do. So I think, yeah, that that's kind of um, where we see like the amount of, uh, yeah, the the quality that's in there is clearly just it's it's two people who've uh, worked on it solidly for a year, and it's just yeah, it's it's a fantastic compilation of both you guys' efforts and knowledge and, and skill and everything else. Um, what, what made you choose, though, uh, Macbeth and A Christmas Carol? I know, obviously, they're both on the exam spec and that kind of thing, but what other conversations did you have around um, why you were making the books and, and why these particular texts were chosen? And which key stage do you think it's it's suitable for? Is it purely GCSE, key stage four, or, or um, did you have another kind of idea in mind? Um, that's a great question. I am just taking a minute to, I'm quite sort of, uh, yeah, thank you very much for that, those very kind words about the book. I think it's, um, that kind of feedback isn't anything either of us ever take for granted. I think um, the feedback we've had has been exceptionally kind about, about Ready to Teach Macbeth. And actually, really, it's, it's thanks to feedback like that, that we um, have been supported to, to write a second book. So it, it floors us every single time. Whenever, you know, we get a kind tweet or someone says something kind, it, it hasn't, stopped I don't think it ever will stop feeling quite overwhelming sometimes um so thank you very much for that. that's that's extraordinarily kind of you um you know I think in terms of that labor of love idea and that, uh, David Weston at the Teach Development Trust talks about being joyfully nerdy and I think that's what we both pride ourselves on being I think yes it's a year we both work full time so the writing and the editing happens you know around a, a, a full teaching job um but we're both joyful nerds when it comes to to literature um in terms of why we chose Macbeth, so uh, Stuart and I did our PGC together. Um, we graduated in 2013 and one of the, I think it was the first play, we go to the theatre a lot, and the first play that we saw together was Macbeth at the Globe, um, the Joe Milston version, which is um, it's my go-to. I, I still use that to teach within the classroom, actually. So we went to see Macbeth and it was a wonderful production and we were joyful nerds about it even then before we even knew David Weston's brilliant phrase. Um, and we both felt that we loved teaching it and could pour that into a book and we both felt that we had interesting things to say or, or interesting approaches to teaching it um, and the same is exactly the same 
truth for a Christmas carol we both um adore teaching it we both teach it in our in our schools um and we thought it was quite interesting to explore something aside from Shakespeare we love Shakespeare um but it was really interesting to kind of then dip our toe into particularly contextually uh, 19th century text and also to look at a writer like Dickens who loved Shakespeare so much there's so many little allusions in um in A Christmas Carol to Hamlet for example and it was you know really nerdy and joyfully nerdy for both of us to kind of explore some of those and unpick them and write about them um through the lens of Dickens as well um I think you're absolutely right you you, you mentioned about them being on the GCSE specification I think that was where our starting point was um and certainly both texts for both of us are on our GCSE um, syllabuses in our schools. But it's been really interesting to hear how people have used the book in other key stages. So there's, there's some really nice feedback um, a couple of weeks ago from someone who said that they'd taken some of the approaches from the book and had then used it to look at how they teach it in key stage three and key stage five, looking at Shakespeare in that way, um, which, is, which, which is brilliant. We're thrilled. Um, so we wrote it, I think, with GCSE predominantly in mind but with the acknowledgement because we're not none of it is about kind of um hothousing or forcing students into a certain way of thinking and writing and talking about Shakespeare for a GCSE exam it's about learning that text and loving that text and and exploring it um kind of like I mentioned earlier in the interview around you know the way that Miss Cracknell taught me that I had a valid voice in literary criticism we want the same to be true for students who learn Macbeth and and for teachers who who might use our book or bits of our book as part of their teaching so yeah key stage four but definitely um you know it's influenced certainly how I teach Shakespeare at key stage three as well in my school mm, yeah I'd, I'd, yeah I'd just like to echo that we use it or I used it as part of kind of like year nine instruction and it definitely because of the heft it definitely gives you the option to um you could i don't think you could conceivably cover everything that's in there do everything justice to it in 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 one fell swoop but there's certainly enough in there to kind of instruct a level students or kind of you know um upper secondary students as well as you obviously can't do everything that you would want to do in the book in key stage three but you could certainly take elements of it a percentage of it and 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 give students like a really rigorous set of instruction um coming back to like uh, the 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 kind of the contents of the book or the nature of instruction that um that you've kind of um offered advice on or or kind of yeah explained uh, best practice with according to research like I'm fascinated and equally sort of intimidated by all the discussion around explicit instruction of reading at the moment I know it's been around for the longest time but it seems to have come to the the forefront of discussions on online a lot at the moment um how do you approach a significant extract of a play or a novel with students so in Macbeth it seems to me that it's not easy to tackle Act One, Scene One, but um, I suppose how, how does it differ in terms of tackling Act One, Act One, Scene One, as opposed to part of a stave in 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 a Christmas Carol or, or any sort of prose that you do? What's your general approach in that in that sense, Amy? That's a that's a really interesting question because I think. <clears throat> there's lots that I, I do when I'm teaching Shakespeare that I also do when I'm teaching prose as well I, I think for me it comes down to the, the fact that as adults we are all to one extent or another expert readers and so for me explicit instruction of reading is very much around helping our students through that gateway of being expert readers as well and if we're explicit in how we instruct students around reading then they've got a lower cognitive load so they're going to absorb more of the actual text 
for me, so I, I'm a strong subscriber of uh, Jennifer Webb's um, unapologetically ambitious, unashamedly academic. I think um, it's it's even in um, the curriculum intent statement for my department um, because I believe in it so much. And for me, it's all about how you scaffold. I I have I don't ever, um, and I perhaps did in my earlier career, but I don't ever kind of reduce the content what I'm doing is increasing the scaffold all the time. I think that every single student deserves access to the richness of, you know, full authentic texts. And so I guess there's there's kind of, um, the the place I start off with is is pre-teaching and what we do before we actually come to the text, because students always bring, if we're talking about Act 1, Scene 1, you know, students quite often have some cultural understanding of witchcraft, a lot of which comes from Shakespeare, you know, the idea of... um, you know, cauldrons and toads and cats and all, all of that kind of thing is, is very much rooted in in terms of literature, in terms of Shakespeare. So I think it's really interesting to look at existing knowledge as part of it. Um, and as you get further into a text, I think it's it's interesting to look at students' pre-existing knowledge of that text. So, you know, you get to the banquet scene, let's say, in Macbeth, and you can get students to discuss what they already know about the relationship between Macbeth and Banquo, Macbeth's current state of mind, whether he's going to be able to accept what he's done and move on from this once he knows that, um, you know, spoiler alert, that Banquo has been murdered, um, how he might react to knowing that uh, Fleance has escaped, because they have this kind of richness of knowledge from having studied the play to that point that helps them frame their understanding of Act 3, Scene 4 before they even read it. Um, They have that kind of rich experience to draw upon. I think big questions are part of that as well. So I think that is the one lesson I don't advocate for showing the big question before we read the scene, just because I don't want them to know Banquo's ghosts on his way. But I think generally, if you share a big question before you read, that helps students hook their key knowledge. They know by the end of this lesson, this is the thing. If if nothing else, this is the thing they're going to have worked out and they're going to know. And that can help them um, through that process of reading as well. One thing that we have introduced, and Stuart's written about this absolutely just exquisitely well in Ready to Teach a Christmas Carol, Um, a new approach um, to us called Read, Reread and Read Again. So that's all about pre-teaching vocabulary and unlocking the key meaning of a text before they, for students, read read it themselves. Um, So the idea is that you might pick out four to six words in the part of the text you're going to read and define them for students you might have it on the board you might do some little activities with them if you've got the times you might get them to transform them into a little icon you might get them to um, use the words in sentences but the idea is that when it comes to reading you'll get to the particularly tricky word one of the words you've defined you'll stop you'll ask a student for the definition of that word you'll read the sentence again with the definition in place of the word itself check their understanding and then read it again with the original word replaced. So they're using that same word three or four or five times um, to help them really embed that understanding in what they're reading. And as I say, Stuart writes about this far better than I can talk about it in the, in the next book, but that has been genuinely transformational for how I teach explicit reading in general, um, because it really helps them navigate their, uh, their understanding and their text. So that's kind of pre-reading into kind of reading a text. I think comprehension questions are a key part of what I, I do as well. It's not even that we always stop and talk about each of them, but if you have a collection of four or five key comprehension questions on the board, let's say, around a certain scene in Macbeth, students can really um, you know, navigate their understanding. They know that this is the non-negotiable stuff they need to work out in order to understand mm. the, the scene. Um, 
And I guess the last one in terms of reading would be, and again, this is a Stuart wrote about this brilliantly in, in the Macbeth book, kind of chunking a text up. He he wrote about um Act Four, Scene Three, so Malcolm and and Macduff's brilliant but quite dense <laughs> scene. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all the kind of political stuff that comes with it. Um and it, by chunking that up into smaller sections, it just helps it stop being overwhelming. It stops being this several hundred line scene and becomes something that you can kind of almost gobbetize, I guess. Yeah. Which makes those complex ideas accessible. Um and I guess the, the last the last thing that I'd say I, I do around direct instruction is around reading is not always asking questions directly around um comprehension or or analysis but actually just asking students to engage as readers what do you find interesting about this what surprised you what didn't surprise you and why and kind of enjoying that reading experience I think you know as you you say explicit reading has been around for a, a long time but it's something that is talked about online increasingly and I think you know the work of people like you know Alex Quigley's closing the reading gap is just brilliant for this. Um, Catherine Mortimer, who I know you you had on, didn't you? Um, previously on your podcast, uh, her book on disciplinary literacy is mm. a beautiful thing. And um, and Alice Vissafure, who is a I think she's a history teacher by trade, but I heard her speak at a conference a couple of years ago, and she just revolutionised how I approach teaching in my classroom. So I think it's about engaging with the ideas of others as well, and and picking out what will work in your classroom. Um, that's had the biggest impact on my practice certainly yeah I can't um I can't kind of reiterate that enough in terms of the idea of engaging with their actual opinion particularly with Macbeth it's amazing to me it's so counterintuitive that a text that's um you know objectively speaking more difficult than a lot of other texts that they're going to come up against it just engages them so I remember asking them kind of off the hoof this year just going you know, to what extent is this his fault? There was just, I know that's a big question, but I think it just, I can't even remember what scene it was, but I, I felt like it was a fairly de- decent juncture to go, come on, we can't really think it's his fault. Wouldn't anyone do this in his scene? And it was bedlam, just half the class kind of going, no, what are you talking about? And the other half, the more kind of introverted, kind of sat back for a minute and maybe a minute or two later went, you know, they've got a point. He's 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 made a rod for his own. You know, it's just it's incredible when that happens, man. That transcends anything which I think you could you could hope to achieve in the classroom. So um yeah, um, but very, yeah, very, very insightful in terms of the, the the read, 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 any of that kind of guidance. I think that's what made the the first book so brilliant. And I'm sure we'll make the second book just as good in terms of those practical strategies on how to bridge the gap between uh, students understanding and, and and teachers understanding so um you've I think you you, you mentioned a few uh, minutes ago there Amy that you, you've been in the job for like nine years nearly maybe nearly a decade now and um very accomplished teacher and writer and all these things but what's one area of the practice of teaching that you'd like to improve on that you've had your eye on of late such a good question such a good question because you know I'm absolutely not the same teacher I was nine years ago um and of course there are things from from my practice then that absolutely still still with me and still part of what I do but I think I've learned so much in that time and I think the thing I've been pondering a lot recently is the idea of questioning because there was a really interesting article in the Guardian a little while ago about how um 
on average, a teacher asks about 400 questions a day. Mm. And about just over half, almost two thirds of them are all kind of management related. Have you finished this? Have you got your homework? And they extrapolated that I think it was just under 10% of questions were those higher order questions where you're really interrogating students' thought processes and getting them to engage, like that question you just mentioned about, you know, to what extent is it my best fault? And so I think it's really struck me that I need to be very meaningful with how I approach questioning in that way. So whether that means pre-planning them or whether that just means the approaches I take in the classroom, um, it's definitely something um, that I've been doing a lot of work on because if I'm only going to be asking on average 10% of my questions in that higher order way they've got to be laser sharp and they've got Mm. to be really interrogating student thinking um and so I've been doing some work at at my school with um recently qualified teachers and we've been looking at um Tom Sherrington's walkthroughs which I think is a triumph of a of a you know a a tool for for coaching and looking at some of his techniques on questioning in there which are of course all rooted in um in evidence there's one in particular called um say it again better so i think historically i've been a teacher who potentially if a student isn't sure of an answer or who doesn't give a great answer i'm i'm kind of have been in the past willing to say oh yeah nice that's the nice Mm -hmm. go let's go to jimmy and see what jimmy thinks whereas say it again better is um, a beautiful technique for really being unapologetic in in getting under the skin of a student's answer and improving it with them and getting them to to say it again better. Um, so questioning, I think for me is um, is such a key to what we do as teachers. And if I can be as effective as I can be at that, then that's going to you know improve my practice exponentially. I think that's a lovely idea. Yeah, great, really, really good, really good one. Um, the uh, the next question is something which I've tried to. Um, I've, I've talked about it with a lot of teachers recently, like uh, in, in some of the podcasts and just like informally online. Uh, obviously, with GCSE and A level or whatever kind of um, exam board or exam uh, structure that you work in around the world, like teachers are kind of almost forced into certain choices within within those two uh, key stages. But at key stage three, there's so much upheaval I guess in some schools and, and change and discussion and stuff like that so I'm wondering uh, you can be as as vague or as detailed as you want on this one because uh, I'm, I'm fascinated to know but what texts do uh, Key Stage 3 cover in your school and, and why did you make those choices? That's a good question because I um, have been very lucky in the last year to um, be part of the team. So I'm acting head of English at the moment um, and we've redesigned the Key Stage 3 mm. curriculum from the ground up at our school. And it has. I was saying this um, last week to someone, it has genuinely been one of the the greatest professional privileges of my career so far. It's been such an exciting piece of work because... We've been quite bold in that we so we had a curriculum where we did. And I think this is something that's mirrored in in lots of schools um, and it works in lots of places, but it wasn't quite working for us anymore. Where we had perhaps you know a unit on poetry, a unit on nonfiction, um, a unit on creative writing, a novel unit. And what we were finding was that students were creating these kind of really siloed schema. So they, they were creating a schema around poetry, but they were finding it quite difficult to make links into those other units. Um, so we've gone for a thematic curriculum. So each year at Key Stage 3, they have three key themes. Um, each theme has a core text um, in the middle of it, but then it's surrounded by lots of other poetry, non-fiction, short stories, lots of different voices. Um, each unit has a different writing focus because 
what we're aiming to do is to, to give students this kind of transferable knowledge between the things they study, bring together reading and writing in a real way. I think sometimes at Key Stage 4, because of the way the language paper is set up, there's sometimes this um, false sometimes separation of how Division, we teach reading yeah. and writing. Yeah. So at Key Stage 3, we're trying to bring those together because I want them to read like writers and write like readers. Um so it's kind of breaking down the boundaries between those two. And what it also does is deliberately plans for the knowledge hinterland we want students to build mm. and the cultural capital we want them to have. So, I mean, as, as an example, um, year seven, this term, so in the spring term, are studying the Fire Eaters by David Armand, which is the core text in a unit called Friendship and Coming of Age. And we've put that unit there because they are building friendships and coming of age in year seven. So you know as much as that's an important theme in literature it also speaks a lot to where our students are at in their own journey developing as young adults so they also read around that an extract from the history boys which is a mm. great coming of age story um and we pick you know, the appropriate moments for that for year seven um we look at voices from from all over the the world as well as so they do um excerpts from clap when you land by As uh, though. Um, they do quite a lot of poetry, so a bit of Larkin, a bit of Hausman, a bit of Hardy, a bit of Heaney. Um, because we we want them again, you know, I mentioned earlier Jennifer Webb's um, you know, unashamedly academic, unapologetically ambitious mantra is in our um in our intent statement as a as a department. So that's kind of one unit. I think the the year that I am most excited by is year nine. So the, the three units in year nine, um, they look at prejudice, courage and good versus evil as a theme. And they do that through the lens of To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm. But they also explore, you know, Morrison and Maggie Smith and Maya Angelou as part of that. Um, they're currently on a unit on power and villainy through the lens of Richard III, which works beautifully because they're learning about these great big lofty themes around power and villainy that will be useful to them when they get to Macbeth. Mm. Um, and we're finding they did that unit for the first time last year and what we're finding now is that when we reach things like Machiavellian leadership in the Macbeth scheme of learning they've got this understanding they've brought with them from year nine um, universally which is lovely and then they're going to end the year which I'm very much looking forward to um, to planning that's that's one of my jobs for the next term um, a unit on subversion and rebellion with 1984 as their cortex so we're being quite deliberately ambitious um, because why not? I think students deserve access to to hard stuff. It's Mary, Mary Meyer, isn't it? You know, students um, deserve that that opportunity to think hard. And um, so that's what we're trying to achieve through our through our new curriculum. So it's been very exciting. Um, still quite new. So you know, we're coming towards the end of the first year of it. Um, but yeah, what a brilliant piece of work! It's, I felt very lucky to be engaged with. I think. Yeah, it's really. I can obviously tell by the excitement that you kind of um you speak with and uh, yeah I'd be equally excited if I was a teacher at that school to be able to sink my teeth into like those different ideas and the different writers and stuff like that and it just makes so much sense to me in terms of like I remember years ago listening to a podcast with I think it was Craig Barton and Dillian William like years and years ago when he talked about interleaving uh skills or, or knowledge or whatever and they were obviously talking about the maths curriculum. And I remember like walking in wherever I was and thinking, this will never apply to English. You know, I just kind of tuned it out. And the more you kind of look at these like thematical conceptual um, um, curricula, uh, the more it really does make sense, like in terms of 
it's, uh, that's the dream, isn't it? Like being able to effectively interleave poetry and prose and play and nonfiction and, and, and all those things. So yeah, that's uh yeah. Lovely answer. Thank you very much for the insights. Um, and then lastly, for me, the last question is uh, when uh, can we expect uh, ready to teach a Christmas carol? Um, very soon. So um, <laughs> yeah, we are, we are get a promise. I really promise we're getting <laughs> our um, editing process it's got some time to spend with our editor at our publishers um we think it will probably be available for pre-order quite soon um mm. so we'll make sure we, we post about it when it is but um you know we're definitely looking i say this definitely 99 sure we're looking you know this side of the summer holidays um so you know be ready for that autumn term down to christmas teaching of, of christmas <laughs> just another forty thousand words to cut i suppose <laughs> yeah okay um well the the only thing that remains for me to say amy today is thank you very much for giving up uh, a bit of your time to speak to me and i, I suppose more broadly um thank you so much for all the hard work that you've you've put into um the ready to teach series and and just all your kind of contributions to the english community more broadly it's um yeah it's very much appreciated at my end and i'm sure that's that's felt by every other english teacher who uh, eventually listens to this so thank you very much thank you thanks for having me